Thank you guys for leading us in song this morning. It's one of the highlights of camp every year to be able to sing together. It's especially an awesome privilege to be able to hear your voices as you sing out to God. And for some of you, maybe it's a weird experience. You're not used to singing. Uh, Maybe you just are, uh, you know, the cool kid in the back with your arms crossed and I, I invite you to participate. I invite you to try it. Sing out these words and see uh, if you can understand what they mean. And tell me if you, if you believe those things that you're singing. And if you don't, then pray that you will. And I'm positive that our time singing together will have an impact on your life. I love going to camp. It's so good to be here, not just because we're in my native land of New Mexico, which is neither New nor Mexico, but because God is here. And I know that you know that God is everywhere, but when we get away from all the ordinary parts of our lives, all the responsibilities that you guys have and school and families and friends and your phones and everything else, You have this concentrated time in a beautiful place that God created with his very words to sit under his written word and to hear from him. Camp is such an important time, such a formative time. I've seen lives transformed in this very room for years and years, and I pray that that's what God will do this morning. Camp's full of great memories and and fun times. One of the sweetest memories I have here is our first time bringing a group from California and other places, hi, other places, to Glorieta, New Mexico on the buses. I just have great memories of of how much fun we had together. Uh, My family was there and they were tinier than they are now. Uh, There was just maybe two kids then and they were little, they could put them right in your pocket, and we had a blast as a family. I remember the bus ride. Praise God for those of you who rode the bus. I did not. That's why I feel good right now, and that's why you feel like you had a buffalo wing soda, even if you didn't. The bus equals buffalo wing soda. But I remember just telling Russian knock-knock jokes and a variety of fun things. One of my, one of my greatest and, and most, it's the funniest thing that I remember from our first camp here, happened on one of the fields at night. Someone thought it was a good idea. We'll call him Matthew. His name was Matthew. Uh, but he thought it was a good idea to play with one of those giant earth balls with his friend, Uh, It wasn't game time, it was night, and they went to the field. And Matthew got what the natives call knocked out. And when he finally came to, uh, we were transporting him to a hospital uh, because he was concussed. And the nurse was asking him a series of questions, you know, when they do, when you get a concussion. How many of you have had a concussion? Good. How many of you remember if you've had a concussion? Yeah, it's a trick question. So they, they think, you know, how many fingers am I holding up? Uh, what's your name? Count backwards from 10. And this doctor or, or nurse in the ER looked at Matthew and said, Matthew, do you know 
why you're here. And he said, for the preaching and the worship. <laughs> he died later that afternoon. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He didn't. He's fine. He's totally fine. He was just mildly concussed. Concussed. He hasn't been able to keep a job since then. No, I'm also kidding about that. Kidding about that. He has a misshaped head, though. No, I'm, I'm kidding about that, too. Will you open your Bible to Psalm 73? Quick, before anybody gets a head injury. Psalm 73. I have been asked by Josh to talk to you about this topic, and I get why he wants me to talk about this. There are dilemmas that face your life that will not be there in your life when you are much older. Uh, The people who harass you or matter to you so much right now in high school in many cases, will not be bugging you and will not harass you 10 years from now. Uh, Having been out of high school for a number of decades, I'm able to happily testify that I think I remember 10 people from my class of 1,500 students at Sandia High School go matadors. So there are things and trials and difficulties that are different as you get older things that you won't face anymore, the trials of the driver test to get your license will be replaced by the trials of traffic school when you were going seven miles over the speed limit. Is that even considered speeding? Seven miles? Come on. So some things don't stay the same. Some temptations will become less to you. Uh, Your constant question and quest for The one, you know who she is, the one. That'll get solved probably, or you'll be alone like Matthew. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think he's happily married. So, So here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are some transcendent dilemmas, and one of them is presented to us in Psalm 73. It's a dilemma that you will face over the course of your life. It's a dilemma that is not one that is simply resolved by a quick answer, but one that can tax and vex and bother even the most godly person. For example, the author of Psalm 73. You see, he is confronted with a problem that you, I think as a high school student, have a very acute awareness of. You have been told, if you're raised in a Christian home, how to act. You've been told how to talk. You've been told how to listen, how to obey. You've been told why you should do that. You've been told that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And then you go to school and you're surrounded by people who were not taught that and who do not believe that and who reject that and who make fun of that. And you think about your life and you compare it to their life because you're living your life right next to theirs. Uh, Some of you do this electronically. You look at other people's lives uh, by way of Instagram or something like that. You look at how other people live who do not know Christ and 
you know what you've been told and what you've taught and what the righteous thing to do is. You know that you're supposed to save yourself from marriage. You know that you're supposed to be kind to one another because God has been kind to you. You know that the point of life is not to make more and more and more money for yourself, but to care more about others than yourself. But you look at the world today. Maybe it's peers. Maybe it's people you look up to. Maybe it's celebrities actors, singers, athletes who do not know Jesus and their lives seem so attractive to you. They have the things that you want. They have lives of of ease and, and comfort and success and they're universally praised. And you're here trying to do the right thing and you get made fun of. And you feel lonely, and you don't understand why wicked people do so well in the world. That's the dilemma of Psalm 73. And I want to work through this text with you this morning in a pretty quick way. It's a long chapter, it's 28 verses, but we'll look at it in just a few parts. And I want you to have this dilemma in your mind because it's his dilemma. If God is in control and Christians believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that's what the Bible teaches, shouldn't everything that the wicked do fail? I mean, don't you think just, just if God is sovereign in this world, atheists should run into glass doors all the time, right? Just as a kind of a divine payback, you don't believe in me? Fine, poof. Like, why doesn't lightning hit all the unbelievers? It seems to be spread evenly. If God is in control, shouldn't everything the wicked do fail? Yet we look around the world and scoundrels get rich, degenerate and debauched persons lead lives of relative ease and comfort. Those identified as God's very enemies prosper. The headlines are filled with unacceptable breaches of justice. Uh, Wealthy atheist people complain about the price of something, and and then missionaries don't have enough money to go to the field. Uh, A young mom dies in an accident, and a drunk driver walks away without a scratch. What kind of a world is this where wicked people survive and thrive, and godly people suffer persecution. A godly wife loves the Lord and honors her husband and she's abandoned by her husband. A Christian couple wants to have a baby and they can't. Meanwhile, 1.3 million babies are aborted in the United States annually. Tiny things like getting good grades. You work hard and you study and you get a B, and the guy in the row next to you cheats like crazy and gets an A. Integrity, what's the point? Unbelievers are thriving, succeeding, and enjoying life. They're elected and applauded and favored, and God's people are scorned. Do you see the dilemma? Do you feel it? Because it's a common question in Scripture. 
The prophet Jeremiah says it like this in Jeremiah 12.1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Job said it like this, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? You can hear his frustration. He goes on to say, their bull breeds without fail. Apparently, Job was having a bull breeding problem. And he says, they spend their days in prosperity and in peace, they go down to the grave. Well, Job's answer is, uh, finally, he says that God is above us. We just can't understand his ways. The psalmist in Psalm 37, David Uh, says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and and he will act. But there is no answer in the Bible like the answer of Psalm 73. It takes us higher and deeper and further than any other passage. The background of this this song is unknown. This guy Asaph is kind of a shadowy figure. Uh, We know that he wrote Psalm 73 through Psalm 83. He was a worship leader, a Levite. Beyond that, we don't know anything about him. But what we do know is that he tells it like it is. He's completely honest. He's not pretending to be, you know, everything's fine with me. I trust everything's fine. I mean, he's, he's, he's putting it all out there. He's struggling with doubt because, you know, true believers can struggle with doubt. And he admits it. And that's okay. In fact, it's a godly thing to do. Because he turns his doubt and his dilemmas and his difficulty to God in worship. And it's there his dilemma begins to be resolved. In Psalm 73, Asaph, this psalmist, this songwriter inspired by God, exposes eventually the ultimate end of these wicked people who seem to have everything right in their life. And he shows that the blessed reality of God is what's truly experienced by the righteous. And he does this in a song. Psalm 73 is a song, and it's drawn in Hebrew poetry, kind of like a circle. He starts in one place, and then he descends down into doubt. And then as he starts to make a realization, he comes back to his first assertion about the nature of God. And so I want you to follow this with me in just three simple parts. Part number one, part number one is the descent of doubt. The descent of doubt. And it begins at the very top, and he says this. Look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is the psalmist's first and, and final conviction. This is his bottom line assertion. It's a simple statement. You can say it with me. God is good. Go ahead. God is good. Can you say it with me? God is good. Good. Simple, isn't it? But it's profound because it's the very core of our doctrine of God. It upholds so much of our theology. We know lots of stuff about God. We know God is omnipresent. We know God is omniscient. He's everywhere and he knows everything. We know God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He's pure. But this little statement sounds childish, doesn't it? God is good. 
But it's so important. One theologian writes, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. In other words, your theology, when it begins, would benefit greatly how you think about God from starting at that point. God is good. By his nature and character, he's good. And by every choice he has ever made, every action he has ever uh, put forward, everything he has ever done is good because God is good. God's goodness is prominent when we look out at this creation that he has made. It's directly related to the essence of who God is. If God made this world and God claims that he did make this world, he could have made trees that produce carburetors instead of papayas. Carburetors are not delicious. Papayas are. Why? Papayas are actually kind of weird. Let's pick apples. Why did God make the apple tree make a fruit that would be so good and portable and delicious. I mean, you can even eat the core. Did you know that? We'll talk about that later. That's a sign of the goodness of God. Why does the night sky look so incredibly beautiful here? In LA, it just looks like a plane flying over. Well, I think it reflects the goodness of God. Why he would make a creation that's so amazing and so thoughtful and so brilliant and so creative. It's because God is good. Josh told us last night that the rich young ruler walked up to to Jesus and one of the things he said was that God is good. Psalms testify to God's goodness. Psalm 28, Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. And therefore instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 86, 5, For thou, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon thee. Psalm 107, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. This songwriter is saying that God's goodness is directed towards his people, and he identifies those people as the righteous people, or as the the pure in heart. Six times in this song, verse 1, verse 7, verse 13, 21, and two times in verse 27. He speaks about the goodness of God and about God's people being the pure in heart, the people who are the recipients of the goodness of God. His fundamental assertion, his starting point, is that the goodness of God is unassailable. Nothing that happens in this world, nothing that occurs in your life can ever undo the goodness of God. Before you take on any difficult question, And before you face the most difficult trial in your life, which for most of you is in front of you, if you had the starting point that this guy does, that God is good, you could and will endure anything. From testimonies like missionaries in the Sudan who are under constant threat 
of not just persecution, but death for their faith. The reason they endure is because of the goodness of God. From testimonies like Corey Ten Boom, who goes toe to toe with the Nazis because she trusts that no matter what happens as her world fell apart and as her and her sister were paraded naked towards the gas chambers in concentration camps, she was confident that God was good. Whatever you face in this life, if you face it with this assertion of the goodness of God, you will have a steady and firm and solid foundation on which to stand. One of my favorite Christian dead guys who also had a beard, his name was Charles Spurgeon. You heard of him? Chuck Spurgeon's what his friends called him. This is what he said in prayer to God. Oh my God, however perplexed I may be, let me never think ill of thee. If I cannot understand you, O God, let me never cease to believe in you. It must be so. It cannot be otherwise. Thou art good to those whom thou hast made good, and where thou hast renewed the heart, thou wilt not leave it to its enemies. That's where this song starts. But that doesn't mean you won't have questions, that you won't face dilemmas. In fact, he starts by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, verse 2, but as for me, my foot came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Pride is their necklace. Their garments are violence covering them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades throughout the earth. That's a description of the wicked people. He envies them in verses 2 and 3. His feet came close to stumbling. His steps had almost slipped. It's a statement of extreme sadness, of dejection, a distressing temptation. This feet-slipping thing is a metaphor that describes what he's up against. He feels like his faith is going to crumble out from under him. He feels like everything he learned in Sunday school cannot possibly be right because of what he sees around him. He feels like he's on a precipice and the foundation of God he knows is the goodness of God, but he feels like he's teetering on the edge about to fall off because he's so jealous and envious and covetous of what the wicked have. And he doesn't understand why, though he's trying to follow God, he's trying to be a disciple, his life isn't easy, and all these people who do exactly the opposite of what God says they should do are happy. And he is not. You know what Asaph's real problem is and what, what our problem is oftentimes when we think this way? This envying the wicked growing resentful in covetousness, in covetousness. 
It said he doubted the sovereignty of God. That's really what it comes down to. Envy criticizes God. When you want something that you don't have, it's saying, God, you have not made the right choice by giving it to me. By withholding it from me, you are doing wrong. You are not good. That's what envy and jealousy says. It says we deserve more than we have. It's an issue of contentment and discontentment is sin. Envy and self-pity lead to inaccurate conclusions. You can see that from his description of the wicked. Look at verse 4. They have no struggles at death. Verse 5, they are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Can I ask you guys a question? Is it true that all wicked people have a very peaceful death? Is it true? Okay, maybe you're not surrounded by the deaths of wicked people. I'll tell you. It's not true. Some wicked people go to sleep and never wake up. That's how they die. Happy in their waterbeds. I don't know how they kept a waterbed all these years, but they still had it. Some wicked people choke on a chicken bone and die a horrible death of choking on a chicken bone. Be careful at lunch today. Not every wicked person dies in sweet satisfaction. You see, when we envy, we don't think right, and we question God, we start to forget what reality is. He says in verse 5, they're free from burdens common to man. Are really all unbelievers having that great of a time? Or is your perspective off? Verse 7, he says, the wicked prosper, their, their fatness. I know about fatness. I'll talk about that. Their fatness is representative of their plenty. Friends, oh, how this world has changed. Just a mere 3,000 years ago, fatness was a good thing. And now we're against dairy and gluten. Oh, if I had a time machine. Fatness represented in the ancient world someone who wasn't going to starve to death like A.J., The fat people would survive the famine. The kings, they were kind of chubby. You know why? They had all the good food. That's where chubbiness comes from. If you're wondering how to prevent this, take notes. The wicked prosper, he says in verse 7. Their fatness represents their plenty and their strength as compared to poverty and emaciation of weak people. And then he describes their speech in verse 8. They mock, they wickedly speak, they speak from on high. I love verse 9. It's a picture of a tongue walking around throughout the earth. In Hebrew, it says their tongue parades on the earth. Uh, It's a tongue parade. What does it mean? It's the words of wicked people are showing off. They're bragging. They're blaspheming God right out there in the open. They're saying things about God and about his people. The wicked are are being uh, so blasphemous and mocking God's people. And meanwhile, in verse 11, the wicked are questioning God's omniscience. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? How do you sum all this up? His view of the wicked is that they, number one, have no problems. They have, number two, near perfect health. Number three, they thrive, though they're arrogant and prideful. And number four, everyone loves and favors them and they dismiss God. Verse 12 is a summary. They're always carefree with uninterrupted prosperity. 
This is a dilemma for you at school, isn't it? You see unrighteous kids, kids who don't know God, kids who don't honor God, and they have all the good stuff. They've got a great girlfriend. It doesn't seem like their parents are mad at them. It seems like they can do whatever they want. They have freedom and they have fun and they're good looking and they're popular. Why is it this way? I told you this is a dilemma that will stay with you throughout your life. When you have a job, there will be people promoted who did not deserve it. There will be people who make more money than you that should make no money. You work hard and you will not always be rewarded in your work. This is coming. And if it's a dilemma you don't start to handle and think about and begin to understand, you're going to be as confused as this guy was. You know, this book starts with Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And what he's saying in Psalm 73 is Psalm 1 seems to be a sham. The wicked are like shafts, Psalm 1 says. Just blow away like the husk of wheat. But they don't seem very shaffy to me. Envy and discontentment arising out of longing for the pleasures of this world or the lifestyles of the rich and famous is a real dilemma to us. Materialism, wanting to have more stuff or just wanting an easier life is a temptation that all of God's people have faced and it needs to be fought on the level of idolatry. You see these sister sins of greed and envy and covetousness and idolatry, they all remind us that as our desire for stuff increases, our satisfaction in God is correspondingly diminished. Solomon told us that it was a self-defeating pursuit. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And so many would-be disciples of Jesus, just as they were described in that third soil, start to follow Jesus as disciples. But the cares of this world, the love of riches, the desire for other things is a dangerous breeding ground that choked out their discipleship. He's in a dangerous place. But he's aiming all this at God. And I'm telling you, young people, God can handle your complaints. What's admirable about Asaph's struggle is that he brings it to God. He could have brought it to the wicked, Psalm 1 says the wicked are very available for counseling. They'll listen to you. They'll bring you in. He could have gone to these wicked people and said, why do you have it so good when I'm trying to honor God? And they would have given him some very bad advice. They would have said, stop honoring God. He doesn't exist. Do what you want to do. You just need to be kind to other people, not hurt people, and pursue happiness. That's good, wicked counsel. Quality, wicked counsel, I should say. 
He could have taken all these complaints to them and they would have been a very eager audience and a very good counselor. You could bring this stuff to them, but those people don't know God and God made you and God made this world and he has the answers and he can sustain your faith even in moments where it seems like everything is falling apart and the bottom is about to fall out of your world. And so... In verse 13 through 17, this is part two, he makes a dawning discovery. A dawning discovery. Verse 13, Asaph's wrong conclusion. Look at it with me down in Psalm 73, verse 13. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure. I hope you won't say that. I hope you won't look at your life in a pursuit of purity and say it was for nothing. But if you do, I hope you'll ask that question to God first. He says, I've washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long, verse 14, and chastened every morning. He looks at his life. He sees suffering for doing what's right. What are the possible benefit of following God and obeying his word? What's the advantage of being a Christian? If those who are not Christians get what I want, not only that, the Christians are the ones who are suffering It's so important to note here that Asaph is so wrong. His description of the wicked success is grossly exaggerated. There are lots of exceptions. Not all unbelievers are fat and happy. Not all die peacefully. The vanity of integrity is certainly wrong. And he knows this is a problem. And it's so heavy on his heart in verses 15 and 16 that he doesn't want to say it out loud to other people because he doesn't want other people to struggle with this, especially young believers. But see... Friends, this is the difference between doubt and unbelief. He's being very honest here. He feels oppressed by and jealous of the ungodly. But what's happened to the psalmist can happen to us when our eyes are on the temporal, when we stop thinking biblically, when we look to the world instead of looking to the world to come. You know, I have a condition, a horrific condition you should know about. It's called myopia, and it's really contagious. (coughs) No, I'm kidding. It's not contagious. And it's been dealt with by doctors, M-Y-O-P-I-A. You can Google it. You can't Google it. You're not allowed to use your phones. Some of you have it too. That guy's got it. That guy's got it. That girl's got it. You got it, dude. Don't worry. It's not like a weird skin disease. It's also known as nearsightedness. And it's solved by a pair of these puppies. See, right now, you all look like one blobby person. And then I put these puppies on. Oh, you handsome young people, mostly. (laughs) Or like one of the Grace staff gals got the other day. She went into the doctor he got a huge laser and he shot her right in the eye with it. She thought that was a good idea. Not going to happen to me. I wore these puppies. Myopia. You can't see stuff far away. You need some cornea reshaping. Your eyeball's too long or too steep. The images are focused wrong. You see nearby objects clearly, but distant objects blurred. It's just short-sightedness. It's really not a big deal and it's not contagious. 
But I think we all have this myopia. Even those of you with perfect 2020 physical vision. Because there's a kind of spiritual myopia where we look at this world instead of the world to come. There's a kind of spiritual myopia and it's not possible to see and trust in the eternal things when our focus is on the earthly. When I can only see what's immediately before me, I lose sight of the horizon of eternity, the horizon of biblical truth and the perspective that comes from knowing an eternal and sovereign God. I mean, the fact that faithless people are doing well now does not mean they will do well forever. And the fact that pure and godly people are suffering now does not mean that they will suffer forever. And this psalmist is almost swept away by sorrow. Verse 16, lost in confusion, unable to understand, deeply troubled, and his dawning discovery happens in verse 17. He says, until he entered the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. What was the turning point for him? It was entering the sanctuary of God. I'm going to spoil my session tomorrow. I got a workshop tomorrow on how to stay Christian in college. And a big part of that is going to be going to church. There's something about going to church that changes your perspective. Sometimes it's just being with God's people and being encouraged. Sometimes it's singing the lyrics to a song that Christians have been singing for hundreds of years. And it brings a needful correction to your perspective. But most often it's sitting under the preaching of God's word where God himself through his word and his servant speaks to his people to help them, to grow them, to sanctify them, to change them, to challenge them, to make them think right. And this songwriter went to church. He entered the sanctuary of God. He sat under the preaching of God's word. He celebrated uh, God's feasts and provisions with God's people. He entered into this place and was encouraged by the sacrifices that were offered and the wisdom of other saints. He went to the place of worship. He took his problems there because problems are welcome at church. Problem people are welcome at church. Churches are not groups of people who have everything figured out. They're groups of people who trust that Jesus has everything figured out and will make all things right as we trust in him. And he has a paradigm shift and it leads to final triumph and assurance because he sees when he goes to the sanctuary what it means to be under the kind and saving and sovereign hand of God that it is the wicked not the righteous who have it all wrong he sees his life and his destiny and the destiny of the wicked from God's perspective from the sanctuary of God the word of God was brought to bear on him and corrected his wrong thinking God was placed at the center of his vision and his vision was correct It isn't the goal of worship to give you good jams, because I know you like good jams. 
It isn't the goal of worship, of singing with God's people for you to go, mm-hmm, that's my jam. I like this song. It's the kind of song I like. It makes me go, yeah. It's because I went to school in the 1920s. It was the jazz era. The goal of worship, the goal of true worship is to bring God into the center of your vision, to correct your wrong thinking, and to praise him for who he is. That's why the author of Hebrews said, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking are assembling together. Young people, I know you, most of you go to church in that backseat slot. You go because your parents go. And they make you buckle up and they make you get in the car and they're making you do that for approximately 16, 17 years. The first couple, they had to shove you in a thing and lock you in, but now you get in on your own free will, mostly. And you go to church with your parents and they make you go. And eventually a time in your life will come where you'll, you'll be out from under that to some degree because parents don't last forever. They get older and older and older and eventually they turn to dirt. You're watching it happen to this parent right now. You're going to go to college. You're going to get a job. You're going to get married. You're going to have your own life in your own car, your own steering wheel. And you will have a choice to make on Sunday morning. And just because you grew up going to church, that's not a reason, good reason to go. But if you want to think the way that your creator made you, if you want to understand why you exist on this planet, if you want to be obedient to Jesus, and if you want to taste what it is to have an eternal perspective, I would encourage you to start now telling your heart why it's so important that you go to church. I know that there's young people in our group who make great sacrifice just to be at church. They go, even their parents tell them not to go. I've baptized high school students whose parents have threatened to completely cut them off because of their attending church and association with Jesus. Some of you are privileged to be raised in a godly home. Some of you are frustrated by that privilege. But I'm telling you, it's with God's people that your thinking can be made right. And that's what happens to Asaph. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just as in going to New Mexico doesn't make you a new Mexican or an old Mexican. but it's so important to participate in congregational life. And the age you're at, there is nothing that is withheld from you in the church. I mean, you're old enough to embrace the responsibilities of following Jesus as Lord. You're the same age that Daniel was when he got torn off into captivity. You're the same age that Mary was. You're older than Mary when an angel told her she was going to have the Messiah. 
It's time for you to get serious about your relationship to God and your relationship to God's people. And so this guy goes to church and he was probably singing the Psalms, the earliest versions and experiencing the benefits of corporate worship. Always what God's people have done. They sing together. They listen to God's word. They encourage one another. And it's here that his ascent begins. From the depths of despair and doubt, he has this dawning realization, a discovery that originates from a renewed sense of God, his distorted perspective by grief and envy and spiritual myopia is increasingly corrected. He becomes more and more clear, lucid, God-centered. And what did he see in verse 17? Look at that little phrase. I perceived their end. This dawning discovery initiates his initial climb out of despair, his ascent, because the wicked are now seen in their true standing. Third and final point. It's his deepened devotion. His deepened devotion. These last 10 verses are just praise to God. Verses 18 to 20, he finally sees the wicked as they really are. Look what it says. Surely you set them in slippery places. Remember, it was his foot that was sleeping at the, slipping at the beginning, and now he sees the wicked are in a slippery place. Verse 18, you cast them down to destruction. How are they destroyed in a moment? They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O oh Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. The godless seem secure, but once his corrected vision happens, all that's secure for the godless is their final judgment. And they're the ones on slippery ground. He says it doesn't require God's uh, great effort to destroy them. They're swept away by sudden terrors. They're no more stable than a dream. If you continue to follow after the world, if you refuse to follow God, this is a warning to you. You are not in a safe place. You are no more stable than a dream. You will be swept away like a sudden terror. When you least expect it, you will be suffering a dreadful death that leads to eternal punishment. That's what Asaph remembers. And it's important that as a person who is facing the grave, me and all of you people who are facing the grave, as one dying man to another, that you understand that there is a coming judgment. It's articulated further in the New Testament, but it's this, God will judge each one of you by name. And Jesus Christ will plead his blood for only those who believe on his death and resurrection, only for those who have turned from their sins and confessed him by faith as Lord, for those he will say, these are mine. They have sinned and deserve the Father's wrath, but I have forgiven them and purchased them with my blood. The psalmist understands who the wicked really are. They're destined for hell. And that gives him an accurate view of himself. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, he's talking about the dilemma he just had. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. 
You see, his circumstances caused him envy and bitterness and doubt and pain, and he admits he was acting the fool. He was like a beast. He was like a monster. He was senseless and ignorant. And this is the gulf between our perspective, tainted by sin, and God's perfect perspective. When Job came to this realization, he says, things I've uttered that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He despised his pride and he repented because he now had an accurate view of himself. Jesus said it this way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to lose his own soul? Can you answer that question? High school student, young man, young woman, what do you want? What is it that you really want? Okay, let's say that you have it, all of it, but then you lose your soul. Was it worth it? Jesus, who was a person, and who was God of very God, says it's not. It's not profitable to gain the world and lose your soul. And he gets this. The psalmist gets this. And he has a new awareness of God's presence and genuine blessing on the righteous. Verses 23 through 26, he says in 23, God holds me. How does he persevere? Because even though he struggled with doubt, even though his faith wasn't perfect, even though his theology hadn't all been worked out yet, he knew that the entire time he was in the hands of God. Young people, when you put your faith in Jesus, do you understand that you are in an eternally secure place? That no matter what difficulty you face, he will hold on to you. Famous Christian dead guy Plumer says it this way, by faith, we have hold on God. But our grip is often feeble. Our great safety lies in this, that God holds us with an omnipotent grasp and he never entirely lets us go. The deliverance was as remarkable as the danger had been. He says, God holds me, verse 23. He says, God guides me, verse 24, by his word and plan and counsel, it says. He is thinking corrected by the word of God, his, his life held by God himself, his heart, verse 25, captivated by God. What a treasure, a heavenly longing for God. God strengthens him in verse 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, he meets our needs with his sufficiency. He guides us and captivates us and strengthens us and protects us, verse 28. And then he concludes this whole thing in these two final verses, verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and those you have destroyed, all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. 
And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. His conclusion is that the wicked, though they seem to have it all together, will perish in the end. And that God will be with the righteous, and they will be with him. This is a right view of eternity. This is the deep, abiding satisfaction for all that God is for us in Christ. When he realizes that God had been with him all along and would always be with him, it's true blessing. And that all this world offers is nothing. The bitter search that so many of you are on will not be rewarded until you come to Jesus. And then the reward is beyond your imagination because the nearness of God becomes your good. So that when you face death, you will welcome it because you know God will meet you there. To know that God is your refuge, your stronghold in the storms of life. That he's for you in the storms and tempests. That he's guiding and directing every trial for his glory and our good. To know that God is your friend and guide and support. That you can be satisfied that God is wise and holy and powerful and just. It's that that will fuel you to do the last words of this verse. That I may tell of all thy works. Until you have experienced God savingly and had your perspective altered, you will not be an effective representative. Those wicked people will be the objects of your envy instead of the objects of your pity. When you think about the end, not of high school, when you think about the end, not of college, when you think about the end, not when you finally get married. When you think about the end, not when you can retire and do whatever you want to do. When you think about the end, not the end just of this stage of life. When you think about the end of this world, this present world system. When you think not a hundred years from now, but a thousand years from now. When you think about the end, what will really matter? The seemingly superficial success of the wicked or right standing with God. I'll end with a story. It was a really poor man. His name was Lazarus. Not the famous one from the Bible, a different one. And he was laid down at the gate of a very rich person's house. And this poor guy was not only poor, he was completely sick, covered with painful sores all over his exposed skin. He was not only poor and sick and lame because he was laid at the gate, of this house to beg, but he was starving. He wanted what wild dogs in the streets were eating, but he couldn't get it. He would, he would just dream of the scraps that were at the rich man's table. 
He had a horrible life. And then he died. But when he woke up, he was in heaven. It just so happened that the rich guy in his castle, who the poor man lived outside of his gate, he actually died too. And he had an incredible life. He had a castle. He had a gate. Back then, that was a big deal. He ate well. He pursued every pleasure he ever wanted. And then the day came and he died. The same day the poor man died. The poor man opened his eyes and he saw that he was in heaven with such famous characters as Abraham. And the rich man opened his eyes and saw that he was in hell, being tormented. And it only added to his torment that he could see over a great gulf fixed, Abraham and all the godly saints and that beggar from his gate, Lazarus, in heaven. And so he decides he's going to make it happen, and he yells, Abraham, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, the poor guy over there, that he may dip his finger in water and put a drip of it on my tongue to cool me off because I'm in agony in these flames. Still bossing people around in hell. And Abraham looked down at the rich man and said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And Lazarus, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides, there's a great gulf fixed and no one can ever cross from there to here. So the rich man yells out, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Someone needs to warn them or they'll come here too. And Abraham mercifully answered and said, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. So the Bible. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. And the rich man's not done. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. A reminder that the reason these men were where they were was not because one was rich and one was poor, but because one had repented of his sin. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham gives him a final word. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, 
the scriptures, if they don't listen to this, they will not believe if someone rises from the dead. Friends, do you believe this? Do you believe what you've heard today? Because someone has risen from the dead. His name was Jesus, and he faced and conquered death. And he testifies to the truthfulness of his word. And friend, unless you repent, you will not have the right perspective about the rich and the poor and the godly and the wicked. Think about that story. Think about it from this perspective. Thousands of years have passed. Lazarus still in heaven, the rich man still in hell. Can I ask you a question? Which of them was poor? From this perspective, which of them was rich? Who had needs? Who had nothing? Whose desires were fulfilled? Who went without? Who suffered and who was satisfied? Who lost and who gained? Who was honored and who was humiliated? Who had hope and who had despair? The answer matters greatly as to which end of the story you answer the question from. Eternal perspective makes all the difference. The nearness of God is our good. The success of the sinner is superficial. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Our Father, we rest in your goodness. Though we battle against envy and covetousness and doubt, we want you to increase our faith. May we pray as the psalmist did, you, O Lord, are all we desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. And though our heart and our flesh might fail, God, may you be the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. May your word ring in our ears and resound in our souls as we go about this day together. As we enjoy all that you've given us in this camp, one another and the activities and games, Pray that your spirit would continue to convict and even haunt sinners unwilling to bend their knee. May you continue to pursue us, continue to extend mercy, and bring many to see their grave situation. Encounter it with the goodness and forgiveness we find in God.